Our sermon text is uh, John chapter 4, as we have this evening part 2 of a message entitled Christ's Food, and our text is specifically in John 4, verses 31 through 42, so please follow along as I read verses 31 through 42. So the Samaritan woman who Jesus has just been witnessing to has has left. She's gone back into town and she's reporting to her people that the Lord was able to tell her all that she ever did. And she asks, can this be the Christ? And uh, the Samaritans are coming out of the town and are coming toward Jesus. And then we read in verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Job says in Job 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the commandment of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my portion of food. We considered that verse from uh, from the message this morning from Job 23. And those are words that remind us of Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 3, where it says, And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, says, Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. And the context there indicates that this pure spiritual milk that Peter has in mind is the word of God. These verses are related in meaning to the words of Jesus in John 4, verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. These verses are all based on the spiritual parallels that can be made with earthly food and eating. Food is what sustains our earthly lives. It satisfies our hunger. The eating of food is enjoyable. And so when Jesus says his food is to do the Father's will and accomplish his work, Jesus is telling us a number of things about himself in relation to his Father. One thing he's describing a felt need, an inner drive, a, a hunger to obey God. And he's making it clear that he finds satisfaction and joy in obeying his Father and doing the work that he was given to do. And he is asserting that obeying God is more important to him than having his earthly needs and desires met. Ultimately, for Jesus, serving God 
was more important than serving his body. And this is evident by what is grabbing his attention as his disciples try to get him to eat. Their thoughts are centered on how Jesus must be hungry and that they have this food for him and it's time to eat. And maybe it is that they are selflessly thinking of him and what they perceive to be his needs, but it may also be that they are self-focused. It may be that because Jesus was their rabbi, the protocol was not to eat without him and they were hungry. And so they wanted Jesus to eat so they could eat. In other words, he was holding up the show. But what Jesus is focused on is the Samaritan salvation that is occurring at that very moment. He's too excited to think about earthly food because the saving work that he had come to do was being accomplished. Now it is true that Jesus had not yet offered himself as an atoning sacrifice on the cross, and yet he was gathering sinners to himself in anticipation of that mighty work. The Lord was already at work saving sinners. In fact, He had been throughout the entire time of the Old Testament era, and this was, of course, on the basis of what Christ would do. So certain was it in the decree of God. But finally, Christ had come to accomplish his saving work, and part of that work was to proclaim himself as the Savior of sinners and to call people to faith in him. Now that we have an understanding of what Jesus means when he refers to his obeying of God as his food, I would direct your attention to the next main point of our outline, which is Christ's food demonstrated. And I would draw your attention for a moment to Old Testament history that concerns events that took place in this area right around Jacob's well, where Jesus has just been interacting with the Samaritan woman. And I referred in in brief to some of this history in the past, but I remind you of how back in Genesis chapter 33, verses 18 through 20, It was Jacob who was in the vicinity of the city of Shechem, which was Sychar in Jesus' day. And we learn that after Jacob bought the land on which he had pitched his tent, he erected an altar. And we read that Jacob named the altar God, the God of Israel. And it is evidence of God's covenant faithfulness that many years later, Jesus, the promised Savior of Israel and Israel's God, ends up at this very spot. But what is even more significant in relation to what Jesus is doing on this spot is that Jesus is highlighting the covenant promise that Abraham would be a father of many nations and that his descendants, and specifically a descendant, Jesus the Christ, would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. From the very beginning, the language of the covenant promises Yes, God said he would be the God of Israel, but he also revealed himself as a God sending a Savior who would save the world, not just the Hebrews, not just Israel, not just the Jews, but people of all races. And what is happening through Jesus' ministry to a Samaritan woman is that Jesus is showing that, yes, God is the God of Israel who keeps his covenant promises made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob But what must not be forgotten is that the God of Israel never intended to save only Israelites. And that's, in fact, very highlighted here, the fact that this is the very spot where an altar was named God, the God of Israel, and yet what is happening, God is also the God of Samaritans. In the New Testament, the name Israel belongs to all believers, no matter what race you may be. 
Galatians 3.29 says, And if you are Christ's, that is, if you belong to Christ by faith, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Romans 9, verses 6 through 8 says, But it is not as though the word of God promising the salvation of Israel has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So you are a child of Abraham. You are an Israelite if you have the faith of Abraham. And what is happening right there at Jacob's well is the conversion of Gentiles. This is God's will. This is the work that Jesus was sent to accomplish. And to Jesus, this is exciting. Meanwhile, his disciples seem oblivious. And uh, Jesus uses another analogy from earthly life as a way to point out to his disciples what is happening right under their noses and to help them grasp his mission. And uh, the goal is not simply to communicate to the disciples what he came to do. He was demonstrating to them what all servants of God are to do. Now, while only Christ can accomplish the Father's work of atoning for sin, all disciples of Christ are to play a part in the conversion of sinners as witnesses. Jesus is an example to the disciples, and the presumed goal is that they will find Jesus' passion for his work contagious. And in explaining their calling and the significance of what was going on at that very moment, Jesus uses the activity of uh, of earthly sowing and reaping as analogous to the conversion of sinners through the work of witnessing. The sowing is the planting of the seed of the word as sinners are presented with the truth of their need for Jesus, and the reaping of the harvest refers to sinners actually being brought to saving faith. Now we know that in the earthly realm, uh, as we think of the the harvest of crops, there's a space of time, right? There's a space of time between the sowing of seed and the harvest. And Jesus refers to this. He refers to the well-known fact of this in verse 35. He says, do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest. So the usual turn of events is that the farmer goes out and he sows his seed and then he waits, right? There's a lot of waiting. He waits for the rains. He waits for days of sunshine to activate the seed and then to give the plant its energy as it grows bigger day by day. And eventually the grain or the fruit begins to form and then that also must go through a time of development and then after months have gone by, the time for harvest comes and the fruit is gathered in and Jesus points to a spiritual harvest here that is not happening according to this normal schedule and process. Jesus says, look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. It's interesting to contemplate, well, what is Jesus expecting his disciples to see? He's telling them to literally lift up their eyes, look, pay attention and look, see what's going on. The fields are white for harvest. Well, verses 28 and 30 tell us that just moments before this, the Samaritan woman left the well to go into town There she said to the people, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? And then notice what the text says next. 
they went out of the town and were coming to him. And so there's this crowd, there's this group of Samaritans who are making their way toward Jesus. And so when Jesus is telling his disciples to look up and to see that the fields are white for harvest, he's directing their attention to these, these Samaritans who apparently can be spotted, who can be seen as they are making their way toward them. And he remarks that there is something going on that doesn't fit the normal pattern of sowing and then waiting and then reaping. In this instance, the gathering of fruit for eternal life is happening practically immediately. He says in verse 36, already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. And he also adds the detail, for here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. So it's possible, you see, for the sower to be the reaper. It isn't something that is necessarily to be expected, but it can happen that you testify about Christ and that person practically, or even might say immediately, show spiritual interest, and you lead him to salvation right on the spot, within minutes of your testifying. In that case, you would be the sower and the reaper, and your role, switching from one to the other, would practically be indistinguishable. In the case of the Samaritan conversions about to take place right in front of them, Jesus is pointing to the fact that he was the sower. He was the one who instructed the Samaritan woman about the nature of faith and, and worship and pointed out her sin and asserted that he was the proper object of her faith. It would also make sense, as some commentators explain, that we can think of a lot of different sowers who probably had an influence on this woman. She has in some way or another come to know something about a coming Messiah. She has been instructed in the differences in worship between the Jews and Samaritans, which implies some familiarity with the Jewish religion. And so she's received some instruction from someone regarding uh, Je Jehovah and the Messiah. And even the worship that was offered by the Samaritans at Mount Gerizim involved an altar and sacrifices. And so there was some knowledge of the need of atonement for sins. She was familiar enough with the law of God to know that by living with a man outside of marriage, she was living in sin. And so we can point to a lot of preparatory work that had been done by others. Whether through Israel's prophets, that's possible. Maybe she had heard some of their messages or through Israel's scriptures. Maybe there were individuals who had heard the prophets or knew the, the scriptures of the Jews who testified to the truth. This could all be called sowing, but of course it was Jesus who especially sowed the seed of the word and gospel as he clearly explained to her that the Samaritan religion was false. And yet even the true religion of the Jews was soon to be divorced from all of the ceremonies of the temple because his arrival as the Messiah was a fulfillment. He was fulfilling all that the temple stood for. So as for the other Samaritans headed toward Jesus from town, the sower for them was the Samaritan woman, at least initially. Verses 39 through 42 indicate that Jesus also spoke with them over two days. And the results are detailed there in verses 41 and 42. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed 
the savior of the world. So sowing had been done by Jesus. Sowing had been done by the Samaritan woman. Jesus added his testimony to that of the woman's, and consequently many Samaritans were coming to faith. And Jesus was now calling his disciples to join him in doing the work of reaping. They had not been involved in the work of sowing, but now they can and should engage in reaping. I spent some time contemplating what it is exactly Jesus was expecting the disciples to do. And what I was thinking about is that if you're sowing the seed, as, as Jesus and the Samaritan woman did, and people are coming to faith, it seems like the reaping is just sitting back and taking in the results. If I witness to my neighbor and then later meet up with him and he describes how he believes the things that I told him, he's now a Christian, reaping doesn't really seem to involve work. It just seems to be about rejoicing in what has happened in that person's life. And it might seem like the reaping that was happening with these Samaritans is simply observing the fruit of the Spirit in the lives of these Samaritans, blessing the word that was sowed at an earlier time by Jesus and by the Samaritan woman. But observing conversions cannot be what's meant here by reaping because the disciples in being commissioned and being sent to do this reaping are being called to do some kind of labor. Right? They're being called to do something in order to get a result that hasn't necessarily happened yet. And let me suggest that a clue to the difference between sowing and reaping is found in those two days in which Jesus and his disciples stayed with the Samaritans. We know that Jesus witnessed to the Samaritan woman and that she in turn testified to her townspeople about what Jesus had said to her. And she suggested to them that he was the, the Christ, the Messiah. But were they actually saved at that point? Based on their testimony at the end of verse 42, that Jesus is indeed the Savior of the world, we believe they came to saving faith. But what we are led to understand is that there was a process of getting them to that point that took place over those two days of discussions. And what I suggest in distinguishing between sowing and reaping, that sowing is a rather objective testimony to the truth, while reaping is what we call the conversation in which you are talking to someone who has heard the truth, and now the next step that is being pursued with them, because they are interested, um, is what they need to do with the truth. They need, to be, they need to be guided as to what to do with this truth that they have heard. Let me point out something from Scripture that I believe relates to the matter at hand. You must understand that in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, when we read of the apostles testifying to the truth, in other words, sowing seed, and then we read of conversions, the, the reaping of a spiritual harvest of fruit, we must not imagine that Scripture is recording for us everything that the apostles and the converts said to one another in conversation. We're given a kind of summary uh, in the Gospels and in Acts. For example, in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching to Jews, and he accuses them of crucifying the Messiah. And Acts 2 verse 37 tells us their response. It says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we read just a few verses later that 
that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Now a superficial reading of that text might lead you to think that in our evangelism, all we need to do in the work of reaping is just say the words that Peter said, repent and be baptized. And if people will do this, then they can be called Christians. But let me suggest that there are a whole lot of ideas that people have about what it means to repent. Repentance is a turning from sin. That's what it actually is. But what is sin? A lot of people have ideas of, of, about what that is. And what does repentance have to do with salvation? And then this command to be baptized, is baptism necessary for salvation? As, for example, the Church of Christ says on the basis of this one verse, as long as people are baptized after any kind of repentance, are we to consider them to be part of the harvest as converted sinners? Well, notice what is also said in Acts 2, in addition to those, that, that rather general instruction to repent and be baptized. Notice verse 40, if you have your Bibles open to Acts 2, it says there, and with many other words, and with many other words, he, that is Peter, bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So with many other words, he bore witness. So we can rightly presume that Peter talked to them about the ways in which that generation was crooked morally and religiously. He must have talked about what true biblical repentance involves, a confession of sin, sorrow over sin, sin being rebellion against God and violations of his law. That repentance is to be made to God as part of an exercise of faith because we are always to ask for forgiveness on the basis of Christ's saving work. And what was Christ's saving work? The significance of his substitutionary work, of obeying the law in our place, and of dying in our place on the cross, all needs to be explained. And then the significance of baptism needs to be explained. Included in that explanation would be an emphasis on how baptism is not necessary for salvation. But it would be something that a believer wants to do in obedience to Christ, who has called his people to be baptized. Important to a discussion of baptism would be teaching on how it symbolizes to us by God's own design the washing away of our sinful record and corruption and that this washing takes place when we put our faith in Christ's saving blood. So what's the point? The point is that we can assume the same sort of thing is going on here in John 4 in connection with the Samaritans coming to salvation. Saving faith was not simply believing that Jesus had the ability to know this woman's sin. Saving faith was not even just a matter of believing that Jesus was the Messiah. The significance of Jesus being the Messiah, the nature of his saving work, and what these Samaritans need to do to be saved would all need to be very carefully explained. And I would suggest that the work of reaping then is a follow-up to sowing and involves the work of clarifying for the sinner in whose heart the seed appears to be sprouting. The significance of this seed that has been sown and what needs to be done with it. Questions are raised and questions are explained. What do you believe? Why do you believe it? What is the significance of these things that you believe? What do you need to do? And I would suggest that reaping is helping the potential convert put everything together that he has heard and to put it together in such a way that he can know what exactly it means to be saved and to know that he is saved. 
And what Jesus is pointing out to the disciples is that there is something very wonderful that is taking place with his coming. The fields are white for harvest. Sinners are being called to faith and are actually coming. And this is all taking place within a short period of time so that the sower and, and reaper rejoice together. The Lord's coming is coinciding with the New Testament era in which there will be this great harvest of sinners being gathered to salvation. And in fact, Jesus' description of this event of great spiritual renewal in terms of a sower and reaper rejoicing together, this is reminiscent of the prophecy of Amos. In the closing verses of chapter 9 of the book of Amos, we find this great prophecy of the spiritual renewal that will come with Christ's coming. I want to read from that prophecy, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. So these are the verses that end the great prophecy of Amos. And hear these words. In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen, repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. I shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. And I preached on those verses some time ago, and what I emphasized is that what we have there in, in Amos is a prophecy. It's using figurative language, but a prophecy of Jesus coming and of the building of his kingdom through the gospel. Amos predicts the rebuilding of the Davidic dynasty, which was fulfilled in Jesus' coming. Amos predicts a Davidic dynasty that will have domination over the Gentiles. And rather than understanding this to mean the physical nation of Israel having worldwide dominance militarily, actually Acts 15 tells us that the conquering of the nations that Amos is talking about is the gospel bringing Gentile people throughout the world into submission to King Jesus. And while the context, in that context, there are verses that sound like national Israel being restored to this amazing state of earthly prosperity, the context has made it clear that Amos is talking about the spiritual prosperity that will belong to God's people through Christ, a prosperity that will involve this creation, yes, in the new heaven and new earth, but not a fulfillment on this earth before Christ's coming. No, this is all about the blessings of of the kingdom of Christ earned through his death on the cross. And so we are to understand Amos 9.13 in a spiritual sense, and in fact, in a way that lines up with what Jesus says here in John 4. Amos 9.13 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Now, instead of a spiritual interpretation um, as I have laid out, is actually mandatory based on Acts 15 and the Holy Spirit's interpretation for us of Amos. 
But some have suggested that the fulfillment of this will be entirely physical, that this is describing agricultural success and, and prosperity such as never been known before. And some have said that though the language is figurative, the idea is that God's people will never struggle to have enough food. In other words, Amos's prediction is, is literal, though using somewhat exaggerated language and points to this golden age in which the curse of sin is pushed back and in an extraordinary way, crops will grow and they will produce fruit much more quickly than normal. And, and my response to that is no, that's not what it's talking about. Acts 15 assures us that Amos' prophecy is about New Testament Gentile conversion through the gospel. And Jesus confirmed, confirms this when he takes this idea of this small time frame between sowing and reaping, and he actually applies it to the Samaritans who heard and almost immediately responded to the gospel. Jesus has ushered in an era of abundant spiritual renewal. The Old Testament certainly involved spiritual reaping, but not among the nations, except for a few individuals here and there, and not even in great abundance among the Israelites themselves as a whole. The nation of Israel was dead spiritually. The seed sown among them bore little fruit, which is confirmed by John's words in chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. But now we see in the conversion of these Samaritans a foretaste, the harvest of Gentiles that is connected with Jesus' coming. And what an amazing experience to bring the gospel to a people who had been excluded and to find a ready reception. We live in the era of harvest, and we are called to sow and to reap. And Jesus will later in his ministry call on his people to pray. He'll say, pray, because there's a lack of laborers in the harvest. There are many sinners who have not yet heard the truth. Many have, but now need help in how to put it all together and to live it out. Of course, many are not interested in the sown word. And yet at the same time, there continue to be sinners who, when they hear the truth, are ready to receive it. And like the Lord, they are, they are witnesses who both sow and reap. But no matter the differences in how people come to know the Lord, your calling and mine, even apart from being a pastor, is to enter into this labor. What should motivate us is knowing that this is what pleases God who has saved us, and who has given us work to do in his name. And may it be our food to do the Lord's work and to accomplish the work that he has given us. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this New Testament era in which there is a great reaping that is taking place, this great spiritual harvest as your word is proclaimed, we, Lord, thank you for how we have in this conversion of the, the Samaritans a picture of, of what is going to happen as the gospel is spread throughout the world of, of people who had once had been excluded from the people of God now being included, the new Israel, um, people of faith in, in, uh, who, who share in the faith of Abraham. Father, we thank you that we are Israel, that we are uh, that you are our God, and that the promises to Abraham are fulfilled even in us as, as Gentile believers.
And Lord, may we see it as our work, as our duty, but even a privilege to be a part of the sowing and reaping uh, that is taking place in the world around us. Lord, may we be those who recognize the great spiritual needs that are around us. And may we realize that there are going to be many different types of responses. But Lord, we thank you for how through the abundant work of your Holy Spirit, there are many who come with even a short period of time from hearing your word to believing and receiving Christ so that the sowing and reaping are happening almost simultaneously. Lord, uh, we thank you as well for those slow conversions where the, the seed is sown and there's a great time of waiting. We know that that even happens also. But Father, we trust that you will gather your people and uh, may it be our food to do your will and to accomplish this work. We each have our own way of being involved. We're not all called to be apostles, to be sent ones, whether pastors or missionaries. But Father, we are all called to be witnesses. We all know people who are outside of the circle of faith, and we pray that, Lord, you might use us to sow the seed, perhaps even to be those who reap. And We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.